welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35, New Living Translation. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, New Living Translation. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 9 and verse 11, New Living Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time pastry consultant. He buys the cookies we keep in the kitchen. Though to be fair, I'm the one who makes sure we don't run out of animal crackers. Anyway, today on Anchored by Truth, as we start to celebrate the Christmas season, we want to continue our series where we focus on Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. Today, we're coming to part four of the poem, where we now hear what the demon lord actually wants from our besieged town of small koala bears. So do you want to tell us where we are in the story, R.D.? I'd love to. For any listeners who haven't been able to be with us for the last few episodes, we've been going through part by part a Christmas epic poem that we call The Golden Tree Kamari's Quest. And this poem, The Golden Tree, is written in the style of some old-time classic Christmas stories using rhyme, and we've also got some music and sound effects uh, to enhance the action that goes on in the poem. And this poem was also in the style of the old-time movie serials, where it's split into parts when you go to the movies on Saturday afternoon before the main feature, they'd always play the latest installment of the serial because you had to find out how the hero or heroine got out of the predicament that they had been in in last week's episode. And of course, in this week's episode, they'd leave the hero and heroine in another precarious position. So next week, we'd all have to go back and put down another quarter or two just to see what was going on. This Christmas epic poem is based on a group of small koala bears who've gone in search for the lair of their creator, who they call the Great White Koala Bear. And their quest has led them to the Arctic, where they almost died, but they were saved at the last minute because they discovered a golden tree that created a valley that was warm and where they could grow food and where they could live in peace. And so this group of koala bears uh, has now been in the valley for several generations. But in the current generation, a demon lord and his horde of marauding minions has now marched into the town in order to confront the bears. 
And so when we left off in last week's episode, the koala bears had arrayed themselves around the golden tree to protect it, and the demons were staring at them and were not quite certain what the demons are intending. But at any rate, as this week's episode picks up, we have the bears and the demons facing off against each other, and each side has their swords drawn. All right then, so let's continue with the story. Here's part four of Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. Step back from the tree, small creatures, for I have no quarrel with thee. I have only come to claim the golden eucalyptus tree. It was brought here by my father against my wishes and will to blight my perfect kingdom, a task it accomplishes still. This land you're on, I own and rule with power and might. The only exception is here, near that cursed tree's pure light. Step back and I'll let you live to leave my northern land. Return to your home down under and find the rest of your clan. For a second, no bear spoke, for none knew what to say. Then a small, clear voice spoke in the night. Demon Master, our answer is nay. Know you not, I will crush you. You cannot stand against me. You will do not but perish if you try to defend the tree. But the small voice sounded again, speaking the town's one mind. And no one challenged or stopped her as she moved forward of the bear's front line. The tree saved our forebears and nourished all that you see. We will not abandon it now. We will not surrender to thee. For though your power is great, Though your army is strong, though defeat for us is certain, we do not fear your throng. More to be feared is leaving, the truth we know so well. The grace that brought us here is far too dear to sell. If t'was grace that brought you here, then where is your grace now? Does your grace demand your life, since to my sword you'll bow? If grace is truly good, then surely it must be that grace would have you live and sacrifice the tree. Now see how blind you are, spoke Komari, soft but clear. You see only the one or the other, and not the truth that is here. It isn't a choice between grace and life, for the second lies within the first. Only doing and serving as we know we must can ever slake our thirst. 
You foolish, foolish bear. Its power and strength I hold. And with these rule my kingdom. And someday the world will unfold. The tree is but the first step. As I take what's rightfully mine. All I've offered you bears is to live for a little more time. Time is all we've ever had. And not because you're here, but because that's the way of this land. And time is not what's dear. The only time of ours you hold is our time in this wintry land, but the time we bears are taught to cherish lies not within your hand. If you believe all you said, then you're not afraid to die. Prepare yourselves, you and your friends, for soon in the snow you'll lie. We're not afraid, my fellows and I, to stand against steel or sword. But a proposition I have for you, O oh, dreadful demon lord. Wow. So the demon lord wants to take the golden tree, but our heroine bear, Kamari, has a proposition. What kind of proposition could a small koala bear make that would be of any interest to a mighty demon lord? I guess folks are just going to have to tune in next week and see what happens. I'm starting to see why the movies played those serial episodes before they played the main feature. Well, as a kid, the trick was not to eat all of your popcorn during the cereal. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any popcorn left to enjoy during the feature. Um, but it helped in those days if you had enough money to buy a large bag. There were no buckets in those days. Today, I think some of us need to worry about our waistlines more than money. No comment. Anyway, maybe one of the lessons we can learn from the bears is that we need to understand that challenges to our faith can come to us at any time. We need to be prepared to intelligently respond to them, and Ephesians 6.17 does tell us that the sword of the Spirit is the Bible, the Word of God. That's one of the big reasons we try to encourage people to develop the habit of staying in the Word. It's the best way for us to cope with our own demons. So where do you want to go today as we resume our study of Jesus' earthly life? Well, in our last couple of episodes on Anchor by Truth, we talked about some examples of extra-biblical sources that confirm that Jesus was a real person who lived and died in Judea during the early part of the first century A.D. But naturally, the only thing that the secular writers could write about was the human dimension of Jesus. And so if the secular writers had been our only source of information about the life of Jesus, we would easily miss As a matter of fact, we would be bound to miss some of the most important details about Jesus and his life. But at a minimum, we would completely miss the most important fact about Jesus, that Jesus was not only fully human, but that he was also fully divine. And here is where a lot of the headaches begin. How can one person be both God and man? I think it's safe to say that many Christians even serious and devout ones, have trouble with that concept. So let's go over some of the basic historical Orthodox Christian theology, the Trinitarian nature of God and the dual nature of Jesus. 
Much confusion arises because people don't understand what Christians mean when they refer to the Trinity or the dual nature of Christ. So let's start there. Well, we need to acknowledge right at the start of this discussion the limitations of human language and the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. Humans are finite. People are finite. But God is infinite. So there is no way that any human or any group of humans is ever going to be capable of exhaustively understanding or explaining the nature of God or the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we can't know some things about God and Christ that are true. So the fact that God is incomprehensible exhaustively certainly does not mean that we can't know some true things about him. And it does not mean that we cannot develop a fully informed awareness of the miracle of the Incarnation. But it does mean that when it comes to talking about the Incarnation, or to God in His infinite nature, it does mean that some mysteries will always remain. But the fact that mysteries will always remain doesn't mean that we shouldn't apply ourselves to develop a full-orbed understanding of God insofar as we are able to do so. And it also means that we should always approach these subjects in a spirit of reverence and prayer, right? I mean, the one person who can help us grow in our understanding is the very person we're seeking to understand. So what does the doctrine of the Trinity refer to? Orthodox Christian theology believes that the Bible refers to one God, but acknowledges that that God exists eternally as three divine subsistences or persons. And the classic proof text for the Trinitarian view of the Godhead is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. And this text says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So notice that in this text from Jesus, who of course, being God, knows a lot more about God than we do, he specifically names the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a slightly different way of explaining this is that God is singular in nature, but three in person. But by contrast, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, is singular in person, but has two natures. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And the classic statement, the classic formulation about the dual nature of Christ, came out of the Council of Chalcedon, and it says that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, having two natures, inseparably united in one divine person, without confusion, mixture, separation, or division. Each nature retains its own attributes. So those views explain why Christians still believe in one God. We're monotheistic. But we also believe that within the Godhead there are three distinct persons who have a relationship with each other. Grappling with these concepts is challenging, to say the least. And that's the reason we always have to be willing to acknowledge that even though the Church has some classic formulations like the Nicene or the Apostles' Creeds, that help to amplify the basics, these doctrines, the doctrine of the triune nature of God and the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ, these doctrines will always contain a certain amount of mystery for men. We're back to the plain fact that finite man cannot fully understand or explain an infinite triune God. So how do our opening scriptures relate to this discussion? 
at least on the surface, while Jesus is certainly providing some really comforting assurances to his disciples, such as that he will provide for them and protect them like a shepherd does his sheep, how do these verses demonstrate that Jesus was claiming to be God? Well, in English, the claim is not as obvious as it would have been in the language in which John originally recorded his gospel, which was Greek. You see, the Greek words that are translated as I am, for instance, in the phrase, I am the bread of life, the Greek words that are used in for I am in the scriptures that we heard today are two different Greek words, ego and emi. And these are the Greek words that the Septuagint translators used when they were talking about the declarations that God made about himself in the Old Testament. As in the declaration that God made to Moses when Moses was standing before the burning bush recorded in Exodus 3.14, let me read that part. But Moses protested, quote, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said that Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Exactly. The most common form of the scriptures that was circulating around the world when Jesus was on the earth and performing his ministry was called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew, what we would call Old Testament. Well, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the personal name of God was Yahweh. So when the Septuagint translators had to translate that Hebrew word, Yahweh, they translated it by using a combination of two different Greek words that were used for the verb to be, ego and emi. So in Jesus' time, the phrase ego and emi in Greek had come to more or less be synonymous with the name for God. Now, of course, in Hebrew, the personal name of God was Yahweh, but the Greek equivalent of Yahweh was Jehovah. So when the Apostle John was recording what Jesus said about Jesus himself being the bread of life or the light of the world, for instance, John used the phrase ego emi for the words I am. And so many scholars think that when Jesus identified himself with the I am, John using those two Greek words, Jesus was directly proclaiming to his followers that he was the same one as the one who had appeared before Moses. But there are also other references in the Old Testament that Jesus may have been using when he used those words, I am, to talk about himself. Now, Michael J. Kruger, who is a New Testament scholar and the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, has actually shown that there are a number of other I am references in chapters 40 to 55 of the book of Isaiah. What's interesting about these references, aside from the one that's in Exodus, is that these other I Am references unmistakably point to God. So let's listen to a couple of the examples. Isaiah 41, verse 4, and Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 41, 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. And that I am he there is ego emi. Isaiah 43.10 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And that I am he there again is ego emi. So when Jesus said he was the bread of life, or the light of the world, he was going beyond simply giving metaphors for the provisions that he was making for his people. He was saying that one of the reasons his followers could have confidence in the promises that he was giving was because he was God. And as God, whatever he promised, he had the irresistible power to fulfill. I'm starting to get another headache when I think about that. Imagine listening to someone standing before you who is saying, I am the light of the world, meaning he would give you all the light and wisdom you would ever need, and then realizing that the one making the promise was the one who made light to begin with. That's a staggering thought. And it gets to be even more staggering. Remember that on Anchored by Truth, we have often talked about the fact that logic and empirical observations demonstrate that the universe had to have been created by a self-existent being. That self-existent being, of course, we call God. And we can arrive at the need for a self-existent being to explain the existence of the universe and everything that's in the universe. We can arrive at the logical need for a self-existent being just by making some informed observations and then applying logic and reason. Or in other words, as people, we have the ability to deduce the existence of a self-existent being. Well, when God said to Moses that his name, God's name was, I am, he was identifying himself by using the attribute of self-existence. So God identified himself by declaring that he was self-existent. Now, when God did so for Moses, he was simultaneously exalting Moses by saying, you are standing in the presence of the one who made everything. And he was also condescending to come to the level of man because he was communicating to Moses in a way that Moses could understand this very plain communication. In effect, God was pointing out that Moses should have been aware of his existence because even Moses' own intellect and intelligence would have revealed to Moses the need for a God. And Moses should have known that even if God had never chosen to communicate with Moses directly. So the point you're making is that the same God who designed and created the universe with all its marvelous complexity and order also created us in such a way that we could perceive him. And you're saying that that same God came to various men at different points in history, to Moses and Isaiah in the Old Testament, to Matthew, John, and others in the New Testament, to leave us a record of his appearances in this world. And you're saying that God designed man so that man could recognize not only the design in nature, but also the design in God's plan for human history. The plan that we call the plan of creation, fall, and redemption. Oh, all of that is either very scary or super exciting. Well, rather like the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, or Moses when he was standing in front of the burning bush, an immediate confrontation with the undeniable presence of the Almighty is both simultaneously terrifying and thrilling. Unfortunately, all too many people today will deny themselves that experience of reverential awe, that simultaneously terrifying and thrilling experience, because they will never come to grappling with the authentic nature of God. Well, the only way we can come to grips with the truly authentic nature of God 
is by reading and studying and applying ourselves to the special revelation that God has left us about himself. And of course, sometimes people want to wonder, well, what is the practical benefit that comes to me by studying or reading the Bible? What we would contend on Anchored by Truth is that the practical benefit, one of the practical benefits, is that it actually brings us to a much greater and more thorough understanding of the nature of God. And since God is the one who created everything, including creating us, if we want to understand ourselves well, if we want to understand our world better, if we want to understand the nature of society and human relations, of human government, of families, if we want to understand all that better, we will do so when we have the closest possible relationship with the one who made it all. In other words, studying and reading the Bible is the most practical thing we can do because it gives us the most comprehensive understanding of reality, because reality reflects the God that created it. And only the Bible gives us what we need to understand that nature. And we all need to have a better understanding of that nature, because when we gain it, we will find out that God is not only an awesome and mighty God, but He is also a loving and merciful God who has made many provisions for us to have eternal fellowship with him by placing our faith in Jesus as our Savior. So let's close today with a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal C's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers, and is dedicated to the Messiah who was promised in Genesis 3.15. A prayer of adoration of the Son of God. Blessed and holy God, we glorify your name for you are a Father who sees the need before it arises and knows our steps before we take them. Moreover, your word has revealed to us that you are not alone in your glory. The great and vast throne room of heaven is ruled by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who instructs, illuminates, and edifies the people you gave to your Son. In the secret counsel that is shared by the Holy Godhead alone, you made provision for man's weakness and fall before the first stone was placed in earth's foundation. In acts that we still cannot fully fathom, you sovereignly elected to send your only begotten Son to come and take up human form and flesh. In the fullness of time, your Son descended from the glory that is rightfully His to walk the way of suffering. Your Son fulfilled the original covenant that Adam had broken, and after living a perfectly sinless life, took our place on the cross. In dying for us, He accepted the full measure of wrath due us and made possible our redemption. The grave could not hold Him, for He had done no wrong, and when He arose, it signified that He was victorious, righteous, and fully able to save his people. What a wondrous love is ours from the Father and Son. We kneel in praise, prayer, and gratitude for Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics so if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books.
We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com where We're We're not famous, but our boss is. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from the Anchored by Truth show that comes to you Tuesday mornings right here on Wave FM. We want to alert all the Wave FM listeners, starting in January, Anchored by Truth will be hosting a special series on the truth found in the book of Genesis. This series will feature Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who is one of the world's leading experts on the scientific framework that establishes the truth of Genesis. Beginning in January on Tuesday mornings at 11.30, please join us on Anchored by Truth for this fascinating series. Together we will find out that the world and universe contain some amazing evidence that the God who inspired the writing of Genesis has truly left His fingerprints on His creation.